to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Philippians 3, 1-14. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for a zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whoever gains, but whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of reading your holy words this morning. May the message that, we'll, that we will hear today is what you intend all of us to hear. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us to understand, 
to understand it not only with our mind, but it will touch our heart. Give us a teachable heart that will compel us to put our faith into action. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm, I'm praying in Tagalog now. Amang nasa langit, salamat po sa pagpapahintulot sa pagbasa ng inyong banal na salita ngayong umaga. Maramat, marapatin po ninyo na ang mensaheng maririnig namin ngayon ay ang inyong pinagpalang marinig namin ngayong umaga. O banal na spirito, tulungan po ninyong maunawaan namin ito. Hindi lamang sa kaisipan, pagkos ay tumimo sa aming puso. Bigyan po ninyo kami ng pusong masunurin. Handang tumalima at isakilos ang aming pananampalataya. Ito po ang aming dalangin sa pangalan ni Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Luz. That was, that was lovely. Um, please be seated. Now, we forget sometimes that we read the Bible in English, but it was written in Greek originally. That's the, the transcript that comes down to us. And so, you know, Tagalog or any other language, whatever it is, it, it's the message, the content that counts. Well, our passage today begins with further my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And, and if you look at the text, it's got that little exclamation point. So that's, it's an imperative, it's a command to the Philippians <clears throat> and to us. Well, but the second part of that verse, he says, it's no trouble for me to write this <coughs> excuse me, the same things to you again and again as it is a safeguard to you. Now, what does he mean by the same things? Bible scholars disagree. Is he talking about what he wrote previously in the letter? Maybe there was another letter that's lost to us that he's repeating. Or maybe he's referring to the stuff that comes after, you know, that verse. Or he could be talking about rejoicing in the Lord. That's what I think Paul's talking about. Because he wrote... He wrote about rejoicing in the Lord five times in this one letter. Once in verse one, in chapter one, a couple times in chapter two, this occurrence, and again in chapter four. I think that Paul is so overjoyed at his faith in Jesus and the faith of the Philippians that share his faith that he just can't help but rejoice in the Lord. And he continues that this is a, a safeguard for us. And throughout the letter of Philippians and many of letters, Paul warns us about things that can endanger our faith, endanger our ability to rejoice in the Lord. Because these things can distract us. We may not even become aware of them. So in this chapter, in the next few verses, Paul warns us about a particular threat to our rejoicing in the Lord. So he continues in verse 2. 
He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Whoa, Paul's really changing direction here very quickly, isn't he? He he goes from rejoicing in the Lord to watch out for those dogs. So what is Paul talking about? You know, sometimes Paul is a little hard to to, to quite understand what he's saying. So I want to take some time and unpack some of this stuff. Now, to me, a dog, it's a four-legged creature that wags its tail every time it sees me, right? Many many of you have these at home. Does anyone think this is what Paul's talking about? All right, good. We're on the same page. Calling someone a dog is not a term of endearment, is it? It means they are scoundrels, villains, wicked persons who deliberately do evil deeds that are contrary to God's will. These are not the people that we should trust, is it? Well, Paul had run across people like this in his ministry before. And we don't get a specific label for them in Scripture, but they are called Judaizers. They are Jewish Christians who demand that new Christians and and existing Christians observe the Jewish religious customs and laws. In particular, these Judaizers teach that to become a Christian, males have to be circumcised, which involves cutting part of the body. That is why Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. Now, Paul contrasts this, these teachings with that of Christ. In verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, that is we who are baptized into the Christian church, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So again, there's a lot going on here, so let me explain it a little bit. In the Old Testament, the part of the Bible before Jesus Circumcision was part of the Jewish law and a sign of becoming a Jew, a, a member of the, you know, the Old Testament community, a Hebrew. However, Jesus told us to baptize in water, a water baptism in, name of the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this replaced circumcision as becoming a member of the Christian church, of Christ's church, or Christ's follower. And and that is a practice that we follow today. Next, what does the the flesh mean? Now, I've never heard anyone use the term saying they have confidence in the flesh in everyday conversation. I don't think any of you have heard that either, have you? But for me, the flesh is just you know, it's just part of the body. It's the, the stuff that covers our bones. You know, it, it's what grandmas, you know, pinch on their, their grandbabies. But clearly, Paul means something different when he says those who put confidence in the flesh. Now, in the original Greek, the word here used is sarks. And that does, that can stand for the, the flesh on our bodies. But it can also mean, according to human standards, that which the people with the flesh on them value and that what they do. 
And the examples that Paul gives about himself in the next few sentences will match this definition. It's all about what, what people do and people value. Now, Paul describes the Judaizers as putting confidence in the flesh. In other words, they depend on circumcision and following these human practices for their salvation. Well, as Christians, we, we don't do that, do we? we? We don't follow human standards, but we follow God's standards as taught by Jesus Christ. So our confidence in Jesus' teachings is why Paul says we are Christ's church. And those who insist on these Old Testament practices of cutting of the flesh are not in Christ. Now, Paul knows through his own experience that trusting in human standards is, not, is nothing compared to trusting in God's standards. And this should said come to no surprise of us because I think we already know that in our heart. What God tells us, not what necessarily other people tell us. And we know that we have to be cautious when we're listening to, to non-Christians because what they say can distract us from our faith. So we have to be reminded of this as apparently the Philippian church did. And so hence, Paul's warning about who we should listen to. Now one way, we practice all the time, to know whether we should listen to someone is to look at their credentials, their, their resume. Now Paul, as an apostle of Jesus, is a person who we should certainly listen to. But the Judaizers apparently boasted about their qualifications as, as a reason why the Philippian Christians should listen to them. And Paul says, no, don't listen to them. I've got more worldly qualifications than any of them do. What other qualifications worth, including my own? Nothing. So he continues in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, that's following the Jewish law was when someone is circumcised. Um, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he's got the ancestry necessary to be a good Hebrew. Um, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's someone another Hebrew would look up to. He's a, a model, the epitome of what it means to be a Hebrew. In regarding to the law, a Pharisee. You may remember that Pharisee was a, a Jewish um, religious group that prided themselves on obedience to the law and how strictly they followed this. So that's a, and they bragged about it, as you know, from the rest of scripture. And as for zeal, persecuting the church. We see in the book of Acts how Paul voluntarily went out, searched out Christians, had them arrested and thrown into jail. Persecuting the church, we've got that. And for righteousness based on the law, he said faultless. Paul was diligent in following that law, obeying every, every iota of the law, every little period. So this is Paul's resume as a, someone who puts confidence in the law and the flesh. 
And he worked hard at this. But I said, putting his confidence in the flesh and human achievement, having done that, he found it wanting. Now, to be honest, the things Paul lists as his qualifications, you know, as a modern person, they don't mean that much to me. You know, to a first century Jew, they, were, they probably were very impressive. But not, not to us today. But if Paul was alive today, what would he want on his resume? What would he want his qualifications be so that we would listen to him? How about followers on social media, right? That's what people, who people listen to today, right? Well, I'm a child of the internet, so of course I Googled who has the most followers. Now, before I give you who is most popular, I have a confession to make. I, I'm not a social media person. I, I log on. I have a Facebook account, but I log on to it maybe only every couple of years. And I, I don't know. I didn't know the names of these people or even what they did before I looked them up. So bear with me if I mispronounce a name or get something wrong. So anyway, turns out the top worldwide influences are soccer players. According to Search Engine Journal, the top media influencers, that's a combination of their followers on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, the top one is Cristiano Ronaldo. There he is. See, I even had to put his label, what he does. He's a Portuguese soccer player. He's got 787 million, million followers. That is 10%, almost 10% of the world's population follows this guy. I, I, I'm blown away by that. Next, we have Lionel, I get that? Not Lionel, Lionel, Lionel Macy. Lionel, well, whatever it is, I'm butchering his name, so my apologies. <laughs> He's got 530 million followers. I get mind-blowing. I just can't believe that. Now, next, third on the list, we get to an American, Selena Gomez. She's an act, actor, musician. She has 499 million followers. That's almost half a billion, with a B, people follow her. That's a lot. Well, it got me thinking, well, what about me? How many followers do I have, right? <laughs> I've got a Facebook account, so, but I didn't have very, very high expectations. So I got, I wasn't quite sure how to do this, so I had Renee Dunn help me. <laughs> and turns out I had 135 friends, which to me seemed like a lot of people until she mentioned that Winnie, the Dunn's dog, had 124 followers. And actually, once I pointed this out to her, she worked on that, and now Winnie has more friends than I do, 138. <laughs> there, yeah, there we are. Now, Minnie's a lot cuter than I am, so I don't blame you if you're going to follow Minnie. Now, th this is not a cry for friend requests. I actually still have some I haven't even gotten to yet, so it, it, it's not quite a priority for me. But Paul knew that the people around us can influence us 
and influence what we have confidence in. If we listen to someone a lot, if we hear their opinion, at least we subconsciously trust them. And because if we didn't trust them, we would click on someone else. We would not pay any attention to them. And if we have confidence on something, then we start to, to boast about something. We, we start to maybe follow that, that practice. And, and this can be very subtle. So it's something we need to be wary about. But who influences us or what influences start with who we listen to. Now, you, you may disagree. You may say, no, no, I choose what influences me. Well, I claim that we can choose who we listen to, but we can't choose what we hear them say that influences us. So, for example, think about the last time you critically thought about something that an influencer said. Probably not. Maybe, you know, may, there may, might be some of you, but... You don't think about it, you just kind of go with it, right? It's, it's entertaining, it, it lets, you, lets you relax, I guess. So our choice is not what we listen to, but who we listen to. Give you an example. If we, if we listen to a stream of people complaining about other people, we all know where we can find that, I tend to see the world in those terms. Everyone is flawed. Everyone is doing something I don't like. That, that's what I feel like. But if I listen to a Christian radio station, I have a much better outlook on the world. And I feel that God is at my side as I go throughout my day. And we all know this. We, we tend to become what we consume, whether we're conscious of it or not. To understand better maybe how we've already been influenced, consider what we, what each of us, boast about. Now actually this VBS scene in back of me reminds me kind of of that because as a society, it represents kind of what society does. We, we build things, we work, we, we achieve things. Those, you know, those buildings represented there are accomplishments. And people are proud of them. Well, when I was younger, I worked to build my skills to enhance my career in software development. I, but I also worked to provide for my family. But to be honest, I worked to be a success. That was a family value that got put on me, that influenced me. But when you do this, one must make trade-offs, right? Do I spend time at work trying to impress my bosses? Or do I spend time with my family, with my growing children? That's kind of a hard one at times, or for those of you who have experienced that. Or do I spend time worshiping God, learning more about Jesus? Sometimes I chose well. I have to admit, sometimes I did not choose well. I chose what didn't give me any, any lasting value. And for me, is, so what I, what I was proud of was, was my profession as a software developer. 
That's what I would boast about. That's what, what I would tell someone about when I would first meet them. But what about you? In your deepest thoughts, what are you honestly proud of? Ponder that for a moment. Is it your education? Maybe your role as a mother or a father? Your profession, past accomplishments? Who you know or who you used to know? The money, the reputation, the, the wealth that you have? Which of those would you pick? Ponder it a second. Maybe to a stranger. What do you tell them about yourself? Now, right now, some of you may be uncomfortable. You may be thinking, well, I love listening to my influencers. Um, I love, I don't know, going back ages, you know, Justin Bieber, the, the Bieb or something, right? That's what it was called. Or I'm proud of my accomplishments. How can I reconcile with what I'm being proud of what I have achieved with Paul saying that everything that he's achieved is just, just garbage. It's not worth it. It's not that the things we achieve are all bad. It's just that compared to knowing Jesus, compared to our faith in Christ, that they don't compare. And what's more is these things that we are proud about can get in the way of knowing Jesus. When we choose them over Jesus. Paul writes in verse 7, whatever were gains to me, in other words, the things that Paul has earned or feels that he's earned, he says, I now consider a loss. In other words, that they, he regards these things as worthless. For or because of the sake of Christ, and actually, for, and by that, I think he means for what is accomplished through Christ, which is quite a bit. Now, the language Paul uses can be a little difficult at times, and I might come up with a different translation of this. I would say, instead of verse 7, but whatever I've learned, I now earned, I've now considered worthless because of what is accomplished through Christ. The things of the flesh, that what we've earned, are temporary, right? They perish over time, and when we die, they're completely gone. It's only through faith in Christ and what Jesus accomplished that we ultimately gain something worthwhile and lasting. Paul kind of repeats the sentiment and expands on the superior worth of knowing Jesus. Verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss as we're worthless because of the surpassing, the superior worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now, the, the Greek word here used for loss has an implication of undergoing, a, it's not just I lost my keys, but there's a hardship with that. It's suffering. So we can kind of read this as if this loss was not an easy loss for Paul, but it was, it was hard for him to do. Just like it's hard for us to maybe not boast as much about what we have accomplished. And Paul continues to say that they are garbage. Now, the Greek word used here is kind of vulgar. 
That's a lot stronger it's, than just, you know, garbage in a, in a bag we take out to the street. It, you know, it might be more appropriate to say, well, it, it's all crap. It's dung. It's filth. So Paul's really saying this, this is not, not valuable at all. Something that should be gotten rid of. He continues, so that, or, or so that in order that, I may gain that is acquired by effort, faith in Christ. Now we think about this, this is a bit harsh, you know. Do we think that everything that we have done in this world is worthless? Ouch, I, I don't. You know, we worked hard at this stuff. But, what, but it's true that compared to our faith in Jesus, what we do is nothing. That's what Paul's reminding us of. And he continues in verse 9. He says that having gained, found gain in Christ and be found in Jesus, that is, he's, by finding in Jesus, he means he has a relationship with Jesus. Not having a, a righteousness of my own, in other words, a righteousness here is a worth um, achieved, a, a righteousness that worth achieved through his own effort that comes from the law. But that, that righteousness or worth, which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness or a worth in God's eyes that comes from God on the basis of faith, not from people. Again, Paul's language can be a little difficult, so I might rephrase this as, and have a relationship with Christ, not having a worth through my own effort that comes from the law, but a worth which is through faith in Christ, having a worth in God's eyes that comes from God on the basis of faith. No accomplishment, no reputation, no circumcision, no physical thing. Everything is nothing compared to faith in Jesus. Now, it can be hard to see the relative worth of what we're trying to achieve when we're caught up in the middle of striving after the things of the flesh, things we do each day, like, like building a city. But sometimes we get a random shock, and we can see things clearly. So this happened to me. As I've mentioned before, both of my parents died roughly 13 years ago. And at the same time, because of a global slowdown, I got laid off of my job. So I had an opportunity to consider what I was proud in, what I was boasting about. My work, my profession, my parental approval, well, like Paul, I found them wanting. They were, they were temporary, like the wind, and they quickly vanished. They'd go away. But I found my faith in Jesus. Giving glory to God in everything that I did was worth so much more than my accomplishments of the flesh. And that's actually why I'm here today at Christ Community Church of Mopitas, volunteering my time and serving Christ instead of chasing after my, my old goals. So Paul continues in verse 10. 
I want to know Christ. That is to grasp the meaning of what Jesus did. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That is a life with God after our death. Coming like Jesus, accepting what he offers is worthwhile. And that is now my goal. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to quit your day job and volunteer with the church as I did. It's just that having, it means that having Jesus as our goal above everything else that we do in our lives. That is Paul's point. So our ultimate goal is not, so if our ultimate goal is not following Jesus, you know, if you were lucky when I gave you that list of things to consider, you would have said my faith in Christ. But if something else is, is a strong second or maybe on top of that, maybe it's time to reconsider what you boast in, what your priorities are. We should all live for a better goal in life. And just a worldly goal, a goal of the flesh is beneath us. Because our goal in knowing Jesus, that's a goal we can rejoice in. And our life is worth living. Now, knowing Jesus is a process. It's not, you know, boom, you're done and you're perfect. It's not something that we can fully achieve on this earth. We are all in the process of knowing Jesus. You, me, and Paul. Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this fully, that is fully knowing Jesus, or I have already arrived at my goal. In other words, his behavior is now perfect according to what Jesus teaches. But I press on. I, I move rapidly and decisively to take hold of that. In, in other words, to possess the perfection, what, what Jesus wants us to be. And that was for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Christ Jesus reached out to Paul. And Christ reaches out to all of us. Now when Paul says that he presses on to take hold, he's implying you know, that he's making a concerted effort towards the objective, striving to achieve perfection. And that to win the prize as in a prize of some sort of contest. Now, Paul often uses sports analogies in his messages, and he uses a sports analogy here to illustrate how hard we should be trying, how we should be focused only on Jesus. So it says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, the prize, the goal, but one thing I do know, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here used for straining actually comes from sports. Not necessarily for, for us, but in the Greek it does. Paul is describing a, a race. We are all in the process of running. And the prize of this race is being in heaven with Jesus. Now, we haven't reached this goal, 
We're in the process of running the race. But at the end of the race, Paul knows that he, but Paul knows that he can't focus while he's running the race on the past, that what's behind him. All he can do is strive for what's ahead. So we must forget what's happened behind us and concentrate our whole being on what's ahead. I've always assumed that Paul was talking about a foot race when I read this before, but there is another ancient sport that fits this passage even better. A chariot race matches what Paul is trying to communicate. Now, at Paul's time, chariot races were hugely popular. They'd be circuits. They would travel all around the Roman Empire. And Paul would have likely seen chariot races in his youth in Tarsus or in Philippi or the other Greek cities he visited, especially in Rome. There's a great big um, auditorium for chariot races called the Circus Maximus there. And both men and women could race be chariot racers. Now, fortunately, we don't have those today, but fortunately there are movies made. And so we can get an idea of what these races were like and can get across some of the key concepts to understand what Paul is trying to say. So I'd like to play a clip for you from the movie Ben-Hur in which we see a chariot race. Now, as you watch this clip, Watch the focus of the driver, the chariot drivers, as they drive and try to control their horses and to navigate the track. Just imagine their focus and their commitment to what they are doing. What sensory overload to be doing that. What, you see the focus required of that? That's just incredible. Well, how does that driving that chariot compare to what Paul's talking about in Philippians? Well, first, chariot racing is a process, right? You're, you're involved, you're, you're committed. And we are still, Paul and us are still in that race. 
Next, we have to press on to take hold of what that chariot is trying to do. We're trying to win the contest. Thirdly, we've got to forget what's behind. We, in chariot racing, if you look behind, kind of not pay attention like that one guy did, boom, it's all over. And finally, we have to lean forward, striving after that goal. Think about it, life is like that. You know, if we don't concentrate on Jesus, others can influence us and we can lose the race. I think we can see how chariot racing is an example of the extreme focus required. That is a level of concentration that, that Paul is talking about, a hyper-focus on following Jesus. Well, there is a, a sport today that is kind of like chariot racing, auto racing. And if you, to win the race if in automobile racing, You've got to go as fast as you can, just on the edge of control. And if you look away or get distracted, the, the car or the track takes control and you crash, you lose. Well, and th and th this is the same focus that Paul's talking about. So to put this in a modern perspective, not just an ancient Greek or Roman perspective, we should ask somebody who races automobiles today, we have someone like that in our audience, in our congregation, I should say. Um, Eric O'Brien of our congregation is one such person. So let's listen to, to his um, experience. Hello, I'm Eric O'Brien. My family and I have been attending Christ Community Church since 2004. Todd asked me if I'd talk a little bit about my hobby, which is auto racing. I've been racing since about 2004 as well. I raced in Sports Car Club of America in a class called Prototype 2. Uh, the car has a lot of downforce and it's quite quick. Um, average lap times and speeds around a typical circuit are over 90 miles an hour. So things are coming at you extremely fast. Um, so one thing I've kind of learned in driving through the years is that my, you know, my hands typically follow my eyes. And so when I'm going around the track, one thing I really do focus on is where I want the car to be, not where I don't want the car to be. So I'm always looking at the track, not looking at the edge of the track, trying to keep my eyes on the prize, so to speak. And similar to Paul, you know, his goal was following Jesus. His goal was preaching the gospel. And, you know, he had people out trying to kill him. He had all kinds of things happening to him, yet he was able to continue to focus on being joyful in these difficult times. Just like when I make a mistake, I'm still focusing on doing well. I'm still focusing on trying to make the next corner a perfect corner um, and kind of just forgetting about the mistake I made so that I don't think about it. You know, one thing between racing and, and my personal life that's very consistent is the desire to focus forward like Paul. And, you know, I'm not a perfect employee at my job. I'm not a, a perfect father. I'm not a perfect Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, I know what the goal is. And um, I pray with God's help, you know, I'll be able to, to be a better father, a better man every day. Well, it's unlikely that you'll all be running around on racetracks. What's true is that you're all experiencing life and challenges that can come flying at you. 
And I hope that my sharing might be an encouragement to someone here that, you know, looking forward is far better than looking back. And for now, my chariot awaits. I want to thank Eric for that, yeah. So life, like chariot racing and motorsports, in life we have to keep our eyes focused on where we want to go. Not behind us, but ahead of us. We have to lean forward, as Paul says, straining to see what God has for us. And if something goes wrong, if we make a mistake, learn from it and forget it. With our faith in Christ, our past sins are forgiven. And we can focus on what's ahead. Keep our focus forward, as Eric said. If we race for ourselves, for our own goals, we, it's a race of the flesh. And we can never win anything truly lasting. But if we race for Christ, then we may attain the prize of heaven, as Paul talks about. And although we have not reached the goal by his death on the cross, it is Christ who has shown us the way, who has cleared the path for us to follow him, to, to gain that prize of being with Jesus and God in heaven. With Jesus, we are guaranteed of winning the race. Well, this brings us back to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord. And we can rejoice because of our faith in Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. We can rejoice because we are certain of attaining that goal of living with and for Christ. So we should rejoice in the Lord. Now, there is a, a folk song that you may remember that has these words to it. It's based on Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. So I want to close out my message by emphasizing this sentiment. Now, Todd Dunn's going to come up here and lead us in that, that song after my prayer. And we should sing it not because it's cute, not because it brings back maybe memories of our youth, but because it is true. Join me in prayer. Dear Jesus, our focus is on you. We rejoice in you because of who you are, our Lord. We rejoice in you because of what you have done. You offered yourself on a cross to pay for our sins and make us worthy before God. We rejoice in you because of what you mean to us. Because of you, we can know how to live on this earth. Because of you, we can look forward to the prize of our life with you in heaven after leaving this world. Bring us closer to you, dear Jesus. May we constantly rejoice in you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. All right, thank you for that. Um, I hope I got my point across to you that we should rejoice in the Lord. It's a, it's a good thing to do. So we have a prayer team up here on your left. They will be happy to pray with you. If you have a praise, if you have something you're rejoicing in the Lord about, go down and, and they will pray with you. If you have been racing, if you have been boasting 
maybe about something the, not as important as Jesus, go down, pray with them and commit to making Jesus your top priority. If you want to know more about our church, we can come down on your right to the Taste and See. You get a chance to see a number of different rooms and hear different people of the church, and, and you get a tasty little bit to eat in each and every location. It's very good. It's very good. Also, come back next week. We have learned more about the joy we can have. The series is called Resilient Joy, and I, I hope that this message is giving you reason to be joyful. So now, go out, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, his grace, shine upon you. May he turn his face upon you that you may rejoice in him, rejoice in the race that we run for God. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.